and welcome to Autism Stories, where we connect you with amazing people that help teens and adults with autism become more independent and successful. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. There are many people with autism that not only have a passion, but are very talented in the field of technology. In this episode, we will discuss the technical interview process for those with autism with Tim Goldstein. Tim is the author of Geek's Guide to Interviews, 15 Critical Items for the Technical Type. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Tim, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, you're more than welcome. I'm really glad to be here. Now, you were diagnosed with Asperger's Syndrome at 54 years old. How has that diagnosis impacted your life? Well, it's had a, a number of different changes. You know, I, I always knew prior to that that I was a, a little different than most, um, but never knew why. So it, it first off, uh, it impacted me, and now starting to understand where I've had the challenges. I've had great successes, but I've been, uh, you know, had great failures and been fired a lot, too. Uh, and it finally made sense out of the whole thing. Uh, and then secondly, it uh, kind of put me on a whole different new trajectory of, uh, you know, my, uh, my passion and what I was uh, chasing after, which is now to uh, help people understand that uh, autism is not just a childhood condition, it's a human condition. And there's all kinds of us adults floating around that are diagnosed or not diagnosed. But most people don't think of that. They think of children. Mm-hmm. Now, in doing research I, for this podcast, I learned that technology has always been a part of your life. When were you introduced to technology, and how did that go about shaping your life? Well, you know, of course, I'm, uh, I'm 59 now, so uh, when I was younger, technology meant very different things than technology means now. Um, I, I actually grew up on a farm, uh, and my dad was a, a diesel mechanic. So, you know, technology back then was more mechanical kind of things and such. Uh, so I, I grew up, you know, hands-on, you know, learning how to weld with an arc welder at, I don't know, 12, 11, 12 years old or something, and... You know, we constantly, you know, in dad's workshop and creating things to you know, blow stuff up and start fires and all the things that you can do when you live in the country. So, uh, you know, pretty much uh, from, you know, from the beginning, I've been technologically oriented. Uh, you know, I got into playing with electronics when I was probably, I don't know, 12 or 13 or something. Uh, and at that point, it was all discrete components, uh, you know, actual IC chips and stuff weren't, weren't even around. But I had an uncle that worked at uh, General Electric. So I was able to get a hold of some components and stuff and start playing there. Uh, 
And then uh, I, I got into the bicycle industry. And, uh, you know, obviously the bicycle industry is uh, mechanical tech kind of stuff. And, you know, I was gearhead. <laughs> so, you know, as techy as you can be. And then, uh, you know, I don't know, I went through a bunch of other businesses and stuff. And then eventually, uh, the whole way I ended up in the computer technology industry, gosh, I hate to think, it's almost 23, 24 years ago, was uh, I was at a party uh, with my wife at a Christmas party for the uh, company she worked for. And I was just working a series of you know, not great jobs, just making ends meet. And uh, she cornered a programmer on the way out of the door uh, late at night and said, hey, my husband loves computers, and what should we do to get involved with them? Hmm. And he told me to uh, go learn and get certified on Windows NT. This was probably 94, 95. I mean, I didn't even know what a Windows NT was. But uh, I did have an internet connection, so obviously technological and geeky. <laughs> and uh, went and found out what it was, found a course online, and uh, went and uh, you know, self-taught, trained on it, got my uh, Microsoft certification. And that, at that point, was an uh, instant ticket into the uh, tech industry with a darn good salary. And from then on, once you're in the industry, you just keep on going. So you've kind of followed your passion, and one thing sort of led to another. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean, there's a whole number of passions that fall in between that I, you know, I didn't even mention. Uh, uh, I, I was a uh, absolute nut for flying uh, radio controlled uh, helicopters starting back in like 85. And they, you know, you actually had to fly them. There was no electronics doing the work for you. Uh, flew those for 20 years or so. Uh, so definitely, you know, that was a technological piece. Uh, that got me into uh, the model airplane business. So I ran a model airplane business. And uh, somewhere along the way, I got into opening a, you know, creating a manufacturing business, and uh, I had absolutely no manufacturing nor engineering background. But uh, I taught myself, and you know, ten years later, uh, had a product line that was being distributed and sold around the world, and reading, you know, our cool articles about people saying, you know, nice things about it, and, and all that good stuff. So, yeah, definitely very, very technological, and not just you know, computer tech. I mean, it can be you know, mechanical tech, hardware tech. Um, Hey, I'm a geek. <laughs> and then how did that, all of that lead to you eventually writing the book Geek's Guide to Interviews, 15 Critical Items for the, the Technical Type? Well, that is a very interesting story by itself. Um, I had just been diagnosed with, uh, with having Asperger's, uh, which came about from uh, essentially having a breakdown from running a manufacturing company that I started for 10 years and having a simultaneous IT career. So, you know, I held two full-time jobs simultaneously for about 13 years straight. Uh, and, and that finally burned me out. I mean, it, it took a little while. Um, that got me into the psychiatrist and such. That got me diagnosed. Um, so that's, that's how the diagnosis part came up with. Went off kind of in that whole direction, you know, being, uh, you know, like many people on with autism, uh, you know, you dive into whatever is your interest and you just, you know, go whole hog with it. Mm -hmm. So I dove in and went whole hog on learning to uh, understand uh, all the different things involved with, uh, you know, being autistic and, mm -hmm. you know, fitting in my life. But along the same way, my wife and I went to a seminar. And it was a, more of a motivational kind of seminar. It was a gentleman named Brendan Bouchard, uh, who's kind of like a, a Tony Robbins, but a little more cerebral and a lot younger. And uh, we went to that. It was very interesting. I, I like the guy. I've always been into personal self-development. Mm -hmm. And they uh, offered uh, you know, additional seminars, like when you go to those things normally, that 
know, sell you more stuff. <laughs> and we, we got involved with the concept of, uh, you know, we, we knew that we had things that people, you know, valued the, the advice, the input, the whatever, just because of the, you know, big diverse background. Um, but we didn't know what it was that we wanted, wanted to actually teach and train and talk about, but it sounded like, you know, it'd be a kind of a cool thing to mm-hmm. pursue. So we started pursuing it, and uh, you know we started taking uh, speech lessons and marketing lessons and movement lessons and all, all those kind of things to learn to uh, you know, be a very good presenter and then to engage with people very well uh, with no clue what we were going to talk about. I mean, I, if you had to ask me what did I think it was likely going to be, I would think it was likely going to be something about starting small businesses. That was kind of my general expectation. Um, And somewhere I was at uh, one of the events and you uh, had to come up with, you started at two minutes and then worked it down to a minute. And then you had to condense something down to one sentence. And then you stood on stage and, uh, you know, to 150 people, you delivered your one sentence. And the sentence I delivered was, uh, I'm not like you. I have autism. And I mean, the impact was just incredible. I mean, one sentence and everybody's like, you know, and people are all of a sudden asking you about autism and things like that. And that's what kind of clued me in that uh, maybe that should be the direction I go. Mm. So in doing that now, you eventually have to take all these things you learn and put them to work. So I was looking through the various you know, ways that you can package your information and such uh, you know, to start with one. And I decided that a book would be uh, kind of in the range of uh, the level of effort I was uh, ready to take on and felt I could accomplish and the reason that I picked that particular subject was, you know, being uh, autistic, and uh, I, I hate the term high-functioning. I, I almost refuse to use it, but you have to. I, I like to refer to uh, something I, I call high-interactional alignment. In other words, high-functioning, what's that mean? Who knows what it means? But high-interactional alignment means in that particular environment, you're probably going to interact okay. <laughs> So depending upon the environment, you might interact okay, you might not. But it says nothing about, you know, that you have anxiety, that you have, you know, black and white thinking, that, you know, those kind of things. Um, so, you know, I, uh, I kind of uh, recognized that, uh, uh, you know, I had pretty high interactional alignment in the uh, interviewing process uh, because I'd been fired so many times. So I had uh, probably gone, I think I went about 14 interviews in a row getting the job offer. So I figured I was fairly effective. And I got to know a lot of the recruiters, the hiring managers, uh, those kind of things. So I said, hey, I, I already know the people I can go interview. I'm certainly experienced and you know, pretty successful at, uh, at doing it myself. And I sure recognize that technical people that I've been working for, uh, working with, uh, you know, and for, for the last you know, however, you know, 15 years or whatever at that point, uh, struggled very frequently with interviews. And it was quite obvious as I learned more about autism that they were either autistic or what I refer to as functionally autistic. So they may not meet the DSM check marks, but if you were to put them together with a bunch of autistic people, you and I probably would never figure that out. They just all seem the same. And uh, I recognized there was a huge amount of that in the tech industry. And they, uh, when I went and interviewed the recruiters, the hiring managers, the HR people and such, the answer was very consistently that tech people have a number of areas that they fail in interviews in. And they all deal with 
symptoms of autism. <laughs> you know, they socially just don't interact directly. So people go, they're not going to fit on the team because, you know, they just didn't like, couldn't chat about anything or, uh, you know, they might have the, the challenge of they take a little longer to pull all their thoughts together because they're trying to pull together so much information and not reply immediately. So people go, oh, they must not know their stuff. Not that, no, they know so much stuff. They're trying to get it down to your level. Right. right. Uh, so, you know, people, people interpret it wrongly. But, uh, you know, uh, we all know that reality is the way you see it, not what is actually out there. So they interpret it as being, no, this one is probably not a good candidate at that point. So I was quite aware that the people I worked with needed help. Um, I was pretty good at doing it myself, and I had very good access to be able to interview all the people who do the interviewing and hiring processes anyways. And like I say, what I found was very, very consistent. Uh, and it came down to communication, <laughs> social issues. Uh, and in the communication, it was generally not being able to give a concise answer. That was the biggest problem. The opposite problem, which... Uh, uh, you know, is also common is giving too little of an answer. Somebody asks, you know, a question and the answer is yes. That's all they give. Yes. <laughs> or they give, you know, five minutes or so technical stuff that people glazed over and, you know, gave up on you anyways. Uh, so with all those things and feeling I could write a book, I said, hey, you know, I went and interviewed the people, sat down and, uh, and, and wrote the book. Uh, and really, more than anything, was doing it as kind of a, a gift back to the uh, technology industry and all these people that helped me have a phenomenal career. Hmm. Now, it's really um, perfect timing that I'm talking with you today because just yesterday, one of our clients from Autism Personal Coach I was talking to, and she talked to, to me about how she wrote a novel and she, she created it as an ebook. So, so tell me a little bit about how you went about deciding on self-publishing this book, and could you maybe talk about the process for those that might be interested in learning more about self-publishing? Yeah, I mean, it, it's really not as hard as anybody tries to make it out to be, uh, and you don't have to go out and pay for a you know three thousand dollars seminar to learn how to self-publish a book. Uh, well, there are plenty of people that will charge you that to do it. Uh, I mean, it's really totally unneeded. You know, there, there's plenty of things on the internet that will help you understand how you should arrange a book, how you should arrange chapters, those kind of things. And of course, if you've, you know, read a number of books in your life, especially if they've been in the genre you're going to write in, you already have a feel for how it should move, how it should flow, things like that. Um, so the writing just, you know, comes down to, uh, you know, sit down and uh, tell yourself you're going to write it. I, I personally have kind of a methodology that I use and the methodology is that I use a, a program that's called a, a type, the type of programs called mind maps which I don't know if you're familiar or not um, you know for, for the listeners who aren't familiar a mind map is uh, basically a way to just record your thoughts and you know, they each go in kind of like a little uh, uh, you know little bubble on the on the screen and the screen they're all hooked together chained together so you could have a uh, chapter hierarchy and then underneath the chapter have what the sections are in the chapter uh so I, I sit down and first go and work out what's my chapter structure going to be you know what are the topics i want to get covered and what would be the sensible order to get through them 
And then I, uh, you know, go and sit down and uh, start filling into that mind map thing under, underneath that of what, you know, within that topic now, what are the you know, specific detail areas I want to want to cover. And in the particular version I use, which is a program called XMind, uh, and the reason I use that one is it's supported on Mac, PC, and Linux, so it doesn't matter what box you're working on, you can share the files. And you can generate the uh, output into a uh, Word document, and it spits it out as a uh, Word document outline. So now you just sit down and you just, uh, you know, if you know your subject and it says, talk of, you know, you're going to write about um, how to dress for an interview. And you've got five points underneath there of, you know, don't, don't dress like, you know, in the, uh, in the uh, gangster suit because that's just not the right style. People are going to think you're strange. You know, don't wear your uh, T-shirt if you're going into a corporate environment, you know. So you got, you know, a couple points that you want to talk about. And then I just start writing about them. And you just start, you know, expounding on them just like if you were to ask me about, you know, uh, tell me how I should dress for an interview. Uh, yeah. Just the way I'd say it to you, I just start writing it out. And then, uh, you know, it comes down to doing the normal editing stuff. You know, you read through it yourself. You realize that half your thoughts didn't make sense. And, uh, you know, you edit them out. You get them as clear as you can. And then, uh, you know, you've got to hand it to somebody else to, to look it over and edit it because you know what you're trying to say. So even if it doesn't say it real well, you, you know, you'll get what you're expecting. Uh, so you got to hand it off to somebody else so that they can read it and give you, you know, good, valid feedback. And I actually handed it off to both people who were neurotypical and people who were neurodiverse because I wanted both sides to, you know, give feedback. So, you know, tweak things out, got things set up from there. Uh, so at that point now I have a full manuscript uh, ready to go. I have no covers. Uh, for the covers, I uh, actually went to, um, I think I did from Fiverr. It was either Fiverr or it was um, uh, Upworks. So one of the, uh, you know, the job, type sites where you just go out and say, you know, I want to do this where people are saying, you know, I'll, I'll do a graphic cover for, you know, 40 bucks or whatever it is. And I used my normal approach in those places is I, uh, I paid three different uh, artists to do, uh, you know, covers because each one has their own style, their own, you know, whatever they come up with when they know what the topic is. And I found that it's so cheap to do it. It's just easier to do three, four of them and then pick the one you like instead of trying to get one person to change their style. Uh, so that now gave me my covers. Now I have a complete book. The question merely is, how do I get it printed? And there's really two routes. I mean, you can either go through the traditional publishing companies, which is very hard if you don't have a phenomenal reputation. Uh, because what they're really looking at is, what are you going to do and how sellable is your book and how much are you going to promote it being sellable? Uh, so they're really looking at you to be more of the promotion than they are. Uh, it's a difficult field to break into. And for the need of what I was doing, I really didn't feel uh, having a, you know, title-named publisher was going to do anything for it, you know, better. So I went the self-publishing route. And uh, the self-publishing group that I went with was uh, with Amazon's. It's probably easiest to use. At the time, it used to be called Create Space. But now Amazon has merged that uh, into their Kindle Direct Publishing. So now you just go in, you look up Kindle Direct Publishing, and it includes both doing ebooks and doing printed books. You take your stuff all formatted out, you put it in a PDF, you shoot it up to them. Um, you know, a couple hours later, it comes back. You can see an online, you know, preview. 
and you can buy, you know, copies of it for, I don't know, whatever it costs to print, you know, in case of my book, it's kind of like 90, 100 pages or so. A couple of bucks, you know, is what it costs to, to print them. So you get some copies, you know, get the uh, actual hard copy one, you go through it, because sometimes looking on paper versus the screen, you just see different things, whatever. And uh, you tweak out the last of it and uh, say publish, and that's it. You are now a published author. It, it really is that simple. <laughs> now, you were talking uh, before about getting feedback from those that are neurodiverse and neurotypical about your book. Did you get much, many differences in terms of the feedback that they presented? Oh, very much so. Uh, the, the neurotypicals tended to talk more about what the, uh, and, and focus on what the issues and challenges were whereas the neurodiverse tended to focus on the how to get around that issue. Now, you talk in your book that technically oriented people think differently than the general population. What do you see as the main differences? Well, you know, I, I, uh, I would say there's a number of things. First, uh, I think most people, uh, whether they, you know, work in corporations or don't work in corporations, whatever, have dealt with technical people. And, usually most of them will tell you those people are very different. <laughs> so, you know, we just have the anecdotal evidence that, uh, you know, neurotypicals, uh, you know, are always talking about those tech people. And it's usually in the terms of that guy's a flame and, you know, is eh. um, <laughs> usually the way it comes across. Uh, so there's definitely, to me, there is differences. The other way, reason I say that there's differences is, we, we certainly know that, you know, in my case, it's computer programming, but I've also done, you know, product design and, and you know, hardware engineering. So I, it's not just computers. It can be, you know, engineering. Uh, it can be uh, actually, you know, lawyers, uh, accountants, and uh, physicians also fall into the same category, being high prevalence of, you know, autism leaning. The way I look at it is we all know that, you know, the technical fields pay extremely well, and there's a whole lot of jobs out there. So if everybody could think the way that you need to think in order to be a programmer, why wouldn't they be going out for jobs that pay over $100,000 instead of jobs that pay $40,000? Well, you kind of find out as you start talking to more and more programmers is uh, they think exactly like I do. And I already knew I didn't think like any most people did. Uh, so that's kind of how I, uh, you know, came to the conclusion. And then as I started talking to, you know, psychiatrists that I were going to and such, and he would say, yeah, you know, a good chunk of my autistic, you know, ones that are, again, I hate the term, but high functioning, uh, tend to be in technology industries or, uh, or CEOs. <laughs> so, you know, there's some confirmation and then, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar or you know, listeners are familiar with the autism at work efforts that are being done some by some of the biggest corporations in the world. Uh, but they have also targeted that uh, the, a lot of the traits that people with autism have make them very, very valuable in the tech fields. Uh, and they're out creating programs specifically to recruit those people and to be able to support them once they get there and keep them there. You know, both anecdotal and, uh, you know, a whole lot of other people chasing after that group, knowing it's the talented group they got to chase because we don't have enough of those kind of skills around right now. Now, in getting a job in the technical world, you talk about the importance of working with a recruiter. Why is this so valuable in the job search? Well, 
I think it's valuable whether you're neurotypical or neurodiverse. Uh, and of course, in general, the recruiters are going to be more useful and valuable the higher the pay of the job is, because they get paid on a commission basis, not out of you, but out of the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, they're going to put a lot, whole lot more effort into a, a computer programmer that's, you know, web developer at seventy-five grand. They're going to put a lot more effort into than finding somebody that's going to be a forty-five thousand dollar job. Uh, you know, because they're going to make almost double the amount of money out of it. <laughs> um, so where it really helps is you know, a lot of the issues that were, you know, came up that uh, neurodiverse, you know, autistic people have in the whole job market, the recruiters can help bridge around for you. I mean, I, I've dealt with recruiters, and this isn't one of the big challenges I have. I tend to be pretty good in outward communication. It's reading faces and body language where I just, you know, totally blow it. Uh, but fortunately, interviews are pretty scripted, so you can get away without reading as long as you can transmit real well. And um, a lot of people, though, who don't have quite that strength of interviewing abilities, if you're working with a recruiter, the recruiter's already in contact with the hiring manager. You probably can't get a hold of the hiring manager. The recruiter, if he has any relationship with them, uh, you know, can say, hey, I've got this person that I think would be wonderful for the job, but they don't interview really well, but they, technically they really know their stuff. You know, would you consider at least talking to them, but understand that, you know, their responses are going to be in, you know, whatever. Uh, so they can serve as a bridge for you and essentially serve as the communication piece that uh, you're, you know, well, both communication and socially. Uh, their network a whole lot better than most, you know, autistic people are networked. Uh, so they are just a phenomenal, phenomenal tool to be able to find jobs. So instead of finding a job being you out hunting for it, it now becomes uh, you just talking to a bunch of recruiters who are out doing all the work for you. Now, there's certainly a difference in recruiters that can be helpful and those that may not benefit you as much. What are some things someone should look for when they are looking for a good technical recruiter? What I personally have found has been the most helpful, useful, you know, best ones and truthfully have often become, you know, long-term friends are more the small local boutique kind of recruiters. The big national recruiters, it's a numbers game. I mean, it's a mill. They go in and they tend to get, you know, young 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 people who are newer into the market, promise them they're going to make a fortune, put them on the phone, just, you know, hammering, smiling and dialing. Um, They're not going to help you very much. But when you get to the more smaller local boutique kind of recruiters, they build relationships with all the companies in town. Uh, You know, they're willing to work with you. They're in it for the long term. They're not in it because somebody said, oh, man, you're going to make, you know, $100,000 the first year. By the end of the first year, you washed out. They, they've been, you know, recruiters for, you know, lots of them I've worked with have been recruiters for 15, 20, 30 years. I mean, they're professionals at it, not, hey, here's a great job. You'll make a lot of money and then you fall out of it because, you know, you stink at smiling and dialing um, because that's how the big companies work. They don't work on really – they say they want to build a relationship, but that's really not the truth. So that's the first thing is I, I tend to, uh, you know, if it's a national company – um, I tend to shy away from them. Those aren't the ones that I uh, try to build connections with. I mean, if one reaches out to me and it's a great job offer, I'll, I'll work through them. But they definitely don't 
provide as much uh, service, benefit, and effort, I found, as the more local type. You know, essentially, if, if it's the kind of place you can go in and the principal uh, people are actually, like, there, that's probably a good recruiter facility to work with. You know, they're around, they're local, they know you. It's not being managed by, you know, high up with, you know, crazy orders of, you know, you got to make 2,000 calls a day or whatever it is that you see with a lot of the, the big nationals. Another thing that I personally just totally avoid is any recruiter that just sends out the form that says, fill in this form with the numbers of years you worked in this and this and this. And you got my resume. If you can't understand what I do, filling out your stupid form isn't going to help. The problem is you can't read the resume, um, <laughs> which is often very true. They're not technical people. They don't understand what it means. So they're trying to turn it into this lowest common denominator because they don't want to do any real work. So if I get one of those that comes through with just, you know, fill in this form to uh, see if you might fit the job, uh, the answer is you just went and found me on a search because I hit a keyword search and you're just sending crap out hoping I'm going to answer it. As opposed to the smaller recruiters tend to reach out personally and, what, you know, they'll say, hey, we saw your, your, your resume from, you know, Dice or, you know, Monster or, you know, whoever it is you've got it out there. I mean, LinkedIn I mean all those things. And actually be able to talk about, it looks like you fit this position really well. This is kind of what the company's like. Uh, you know, this is the general area they're located. Uh, do you think that's something that would interest you and you want to pursue further? Well, to me, that's somebody I can work with versus somebody that says, fill out my form and I really don't even want to talk to you. So someone that's making an effort to kind of get to know you, build some type of connection with you. Yeah, because what you really want is you want them to understand you at the level that they can go in and sell you on your strengths because you know, you know, we all know if you're autistic that there are weaknesses. And, uh, you know, again, I tend to be pretty good at covering them, but if you're around me long enough, there's going to eventually be a day where there's enough stress, enough anxiety, you know, enough mayhem that autistic things are going to come out. <laughs> and uh, you need somebody that, understands that they can explain to them hey this person's really you know really good but you know this is some of the challenges that they may have but if you can manage and deal with that this person would be just you know a rock star for you as opposed to if you send it in through hr and the normal keyword search and stuff you probably wouldn't even get talked to but the recruiter again they're in direct contact so they can sell you to them whereas you can't do that because you can't you know, the only way you can sell them is right in your resume. And uh, nowadays, because most larger companies send them all through automated software, you really have to put them in a standardized format that is very, very hard to feature anything that is not a traditional skill. Now, I always find the names of books as well as chapters interesting. My favorite name for one of the chapters in the Geek's Guide for interviews was uh, titled Prepared... Prepare or Die, in which you talk about the importance of preparing for a technical interview. Talk about what type of preparation is needed for these types of interviews. It's really funny, uh, and I'll give you a uh, kind of an interesting little uh, story. When I first decided I was going to write this book, I went and called a, a group of people that worked at a company that I used to work at but had been fired from. Um, on the other hand, I actually have been very good, uh, you know, the person who fired me and I are still very good friends. I've even gone and done consulting work for him on autism. So, you know, it was one of those things, an autistic thing came out, it 
violated policy. He just had to fire me. But so anyway, I didn't work there. But you know, connection relationships were good. It was just one of those, you know, procedural things that had to happen. Uh, so I took a bunch of them out to lunch. I four or five of the guys that you know I worked with, and uh, went around the table and and I asked him, you know, what is the biggest challenge that you have? when you're interviewing for a job. And one of them expressed it so succinctly, and it was just so great. What he said was, my biggest challenge is getting non-technical people to understand how good I am technically. Hmm. He totally missed the point of what the interview was about. When you're doing technical interviews, you have somebody who interviews you on the technical area. But when you're dealing with the non-technical people, they just go, hey, our tech person said that they're they have the skills. They're not trying to evaluate your technical skills. They don't know how to. They're trying to evaluate, can you fit? Can I work with this person? Will they work into the team? That's what they want to know. But most technical people aren't good at explaining how they're going to be a good fit for the team, how they're bringing you know, benefits to, to the team, to the company. Uh, instead, they want to talk about how great a technician they are. So you're giving the wrong message for the wrong person. So when I say prepare or die, those people, uh, again, those tend to be more, they're neurotypicals. It tends to be the managers. It tends to be the HR people. And what they want to hear is they want to hear stories. They want to hear something about tell us the time. And these are traditional questions that get asked. Tell us a time you had a conflict with a coworker and how did you solve it? Well, there's nothing technical involved in that question. So if all you did was study all the top 10 questions for your technology stack that you work on, you are totally unprepared to ask a human interaction type question. So my recommendation is, you know that there's five or six questions you're always going to get asked. You're always going to get asked, how did you deal with a conflict with, you know, a coworker? Uh, you're going to get asked about, you know, what's the project that you're most proud of? Uh, you know, things like that. Yeah, 99% of the time, you're going to get a bunch of those questions. And they're going to be probably phrased virtually that way. The problem is, is you need to answer it with a story. You need to be able to relate to them the way they want to be related to, which is they want to hear about how you had human interaction with this person that you had a challenge with and got over it. But if you don't sit down and do that and figure out what that story is ahead of time, how are you going to deliver that story in the two minutes that you need to answer the question? Because they don't want to hear 10 minutes of it. If you use 10 minutes, guess what? Our interview, you get six questions, you're done. I don't want to be judged on six questions, so you need to answer them quick. So you need to get your stories down tight. You need to know when they say, tell us about a time, that you already have the story that not only you can explain quickly, succinctly, only hitting the points that are important, but that also show that your resolution makes you beneficial to their team. So that's when I say prepare, and that's really what the preparation is is creating the kind of stories that the neurotypicals want to hear. In your book, you talked about when you have a face-to-face -face interview for a technical job, it's, it's rarely about your technical skill set, even when you're asked a technical question. What then do you typically see as the intent of the interviewer when asking technical questions in the interview? Uh, how you handle it. It's not the answer you give. Um, even if the answer is wrong, they really want to see how do you handle when just a problem's dropped in your lap? 
you know, do you freeze and can't come up with anything? Can you give a, an, actually an explanation of, well, I'd kind of start down this way, but until I really saw it, I wouldn't know the exact details. Um, they're really thinking about your thought process. Because in the real world, that's what they're going to do. They're going to drop problems in your lap and expect that you can run with them. Which isn't really a technical answer. It's really a, this is how I handle when problems are dropped in my lap that I need to deal with. That is really what they're looking at more than anything is, how do you deal with problems that are just thrown at you? And I'll be honest, one of the, my favorite answers to the, how would you deal with X, Y, Z? And it's just a bizarre situation. I mean, it's something technically that could happen, but it's a super edge case. It's, you know, it's a bizarre kind of question that most likely nobody's run into their life except this one person that happened to be working on the system that did that thing. And the answer I'm going to give them is real simple. It's, it's the truth. Uh, I'd go to Google and I'd punch it in Google. That's what I do. And I've told tons of interviewers that. And the answer is, yeah, that's exactly what we do too. Once, though, I did have somebody who said, cool. And they slid their laptop across the desk and said, good, now show me what you can find for this. And they wanted to see that I could actually do the search like I said I would. But that was only one. All the rest of them just said, yeah, right, yeah, that's what we all do. Cool, let's move on. In other words, you addressed it. You're not frozen. You're not going to sit there for days spinning your wheels trying to figure it out yourself. You're going to go out to the resource that everybody else uses and, you know, be effective with your time. Now, I'm often in the position of interviewing people to work for Autism Personal Coach. My favorite part of the interview is never about the questions that I ask. It's about the questions that the interviewee asks me. So can you talk about the type of questions someone should ask the interviewer for a technical job? Well, you know, we'll first start with the uh, questions, and this would be any job that you should never ask at the interview stage. And, and the things you should never ask at the interview stage is, uh, you know, how much does this pay? Um, if you went through a recruiter, you already know the ballpark they're going to be paying in anyways. If you didn't go through a recruiter, you don't know. But that's a what's in it for me question, not a what I'm bringing to you kind of question. Uh, you know, another thing is don't ask what the benefit plan is. Don't ask how many days of vacation you get. Uh, now, something that, you know, the kinds of questions that I find are good and that they very much like and respond to is, give me an example of what a day in the life of doing that position would be like. Um, you know, tell me about how the company, uh, you know, looks at, um, you know, if you have particular uh, things that you, you know, support, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, green energy, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, whatever uh, discrimination, it, it, and for me, it's autism. So, you know, one of my questions is, how does your company handle dealing with people who are on the spectrum? And I just ask them straight out. Uh, I don't necessarily recommend that question for everybody, but I'm in a little bit of a different situation. If you just type my name in Google, I come up as number one under saying neurodiversity. And if you hit the page, the first thing you see is me speaking, saying I have autism. So better I tell them up front and kind of pull them in than they uh, find out afterwards. Now, if someone wants to get a copy of the Geek's Guide to Interviews, 15 critical items for the technical type, how would they go about doing that? Uh, Amazon.com. Very simple. <laughs> Very simple. It's available both in Kindle version and it's available in, uh, in print version. Well, Tim, I really appreciate the conversation. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, you're more than welcome. It's been great chatting with you. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode, and thanks so much for Tim for the conversation. Did you know that Autism Personal Coach saves people with autism from feeling alone and being isolated? So often, teens and adults with autism struggle with anxiety, and as a result, don't have success in their lives. One source of anxiety is the interview process, and Autism Personal Coach often teaches people to become more successful in these interviews. To get an autism coach for a loved one or yourself, it's very easy. All you have to do is email autismpersonalcoach at yahoo.com or call 216-336-5889 and request a coach today. On next week's episode of Autism Stories, we will talk with Becca Laurie, a columnist for Geek Club Books Zoo Magazine, which is a digital online magazine written by the autism community for the autism community. Talk to you then.